In episode 2 of this series, we tracked the fall of Zinoviev and the rise of Stalin as the personification of the counter-revolutionary bureaucracy in the Soviet Union. We learned about the so-called Bolshevization campaign and the cynical invention of the term Trotskyism after Lenin's death. We saw how the majority of Bolshevik leaders were simply out of their depth, how they zigzagged back and forth from unhinged ultra-leftism to blatant class collaboration, and how they leaned on organizational measures to deal with political problems and differences. We then learned a bit about the disastrous effects of all this chaos in the German and French Communist parties. And to kick off this episode, we'll take a look at how these processes played out here in the U.S. America will never be a socialist country. Attitudes are changing towards socialism. We believe the only solution is the establishment of a workers' government on a socialist program. Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of the Socialist Revolution Podcast. My name is John Peterson, I'm the executive editor of Socialist Revolution Magazine. You can visit our website at www.socialistrevolution.org. Every episode we feature contributions and discussions on current events, history, and theory from a Marxist class struggle perspective featuring revolutionary socialists from around the country and around the world. Now, from the beginning, when it emerged from the Socialist Party, the Communist Party in the U.S. was an atomized, factional mess. The movement was dominated by the many foreign-language federations of immigrants, such as the Russians, Germans, and Hungarians. Incredibly, in the early days, only between 5% and 10% of the American Communist Party's members were in English-speaking branches. Given the conditions of their home countries, many of these comrades believed that a secretive underground organization was a matter of principle, even though conditions in the U.S. were very different from places like Tsarist Russia. At one point, there were two official communist parties in the U.S., the Communist Party of America, led by Ruthenberg and Freina, and the Communist Labor Party, grouped around John Reed and Gitlow, both of which had emerged from left splits from the Socialist Party. These were eventually forced to fuse together on a politically unprincipled basis after a series of decrees by Zinoviev and the Comintern. As a result, the Communist Party was permanently divided into bitterly entrenched factions. The post-World War I boom of the 1920s led to enormous confusion and backsliding in the American CP, with many writing off the prospect of economic crisis and revolution altogether. All of this opened the way for the Hungarian, Josef Pogani, known as John Pepper in the U.S., to barge in and wreak havoc as the alleged representative of the Comintern in the U.S. Among other insanities, Pepper proclaimed that poor farmers, not the workers, were the revolutionary class. James P. Cannon likened these days to, quote, political gang warfare. The American comrades were at a primitive stage of building a revolutionary organization and unfortunately never had the opportunity to emerge from the quagmire. Even before the Bolshevization campaign was launched, the CPUSA was dependent on the Comintern. It relied on Moscow, and Zinoviev in particular, to mediate between the various factions. It was never able to build a cohesive, unified national leadership. All of this made it ripe terrain for the Bonapartist maneuvering and balancing between factions of someone like Zinoviev. And although the CPUSA was already in effect Bolshevized, a strident Bolshevization campaign was pursued ruthlessly, headed by none other than James Cannon himself. In fact, he was known as the captain of Bolshevization. 
He was a hardline Zinoviev loyalist who unquestioningly implemented the decisions of the Fifth Congress with almost religious zeal. As an example, after Trotsky's Lessons of October appeared, Cannon and Earl Browder banned the publication of Trotsky's articles in the CPUSA's theoretical journal, The Workers Monthly. Like Zinoviev, Cannon was a highly skilled agitator, able to translate others' ideas into demagogic speeches and action. He was strong-willed and a proletarian fighter, an ex-wobbly with solid class instincts. He had known and largely been trained by class fighters like Big Bill Haywood. But he had a low theoretical level, not a shred of dialectics, and was guided solely by good old American pragmatism and common sense. Given the factional mess of the U.S. party, one can understand why Cannon would be a fan of a monolithic party with absolute agreement on everything and blind authority to the leadership. That would sure make things a lot easier. But you'll never build a genuine Bolshevik party with such methods, not in a billion years. The various leaders of the American party all jockeyed for position to gain the favor of Zinoviev or Bukharin. Visits to Moscow resembled visits to the Vatican. Increasingly, the internal political debates and election results were decided in advance behind closed doors. The factional fighting and Moscow's interference reached the height of absurdity at the American party's fourth convention in 1925. As usual, the party was deeply divided, roughly down the middle. William Z. Foster and James Cannon's faction had won a majority of the convention delegates against the faction led by Charles Ruthenberg and Jay Lovestone. However, after the convention, all the decisions were overturned by a telegraph cable from Moscow declaring that, quote, the Ruthenberg group is more loyal to the decisions of the Communist International. Foster wanted to fight the decision, but Cannon split with Foster and formed a third faction that wanted to accept Moscow's decision while arguing that in reality he, not Ruthenberg, was more loyal. Cannon also opposed having the Comintern's bureaucratic intervention debated within the party as he thought that would undermine the Comintern's authority. This is really low-level stuff. Once again, one of the key countries of the World Revolution was treated like a pawn in a game of bureaucratic chess. Many honest and energetic revolutionaries were utterly ruined, losing sight of why they had become communist revolutionaries in the first place. Factionalism, which in earlier times had been a means to an end, became an end in itself. Many, like Foster, were eventually happy to accept Moscow's impositions if it meant that they would benefit personally. But that was also temporary, as the factions in Moscow also rose and fell. No one was betting on Stalin in the early years, most didn't even know he existed, so the Americans ingratiated themselves to people like Zinoviev and Bukharin. When Stalin finally emerged as the victor, so-called communists from around the world prostrated themselves and fawned over him to win his favor. To his credit, James Cannon and the Canadian Maurice Spector eventually repudiated Stalin. After stumbling across Trotsky's critique of the draft program of the International at the 6th Congress, they went on to found American and Canadian Trotskyism and eventually the 4th International. But the methods Cannon learned under Zinoviev's tutelage left their mark, and he never really unlearned them. When Trotsky was alive, he could get the best out of Cannon. But once he died, it was all over for the most important section of the 4th International. As for the Communist Party after the Trotskyists left or were expelled, it stumbled from one absurd position to another in lockstep with Moscow. As an example, during the Popular Front period, it was opposed to fascism. Despite the class collaboration inherent in the Popular Front, which took the form of support for US, British, and French imperialism, at least this was in tune with the class instincts of the American workers who understood what fascism represented. On this basis, party membership rose to about 66,000 by 1939. 
But after Stalin did an about-face and signed the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact with the Nazis in August 1939, 20,000 American communists ripped up their membership cards in disgust. Earl Browder, who stood at the head of the CP at the time, couldn't help but oppose the Nazi invasion of Poland on September 1st, 1939. But he soon received his marching orders from Moscow and denounced the Polish government instead. Shortly thereafter, of course, the Stalinists invaded Poland from the other side and coordinated with the Germans along their new common border. The new line was to denounce the Allied governments and to abandon their anti-fascist campaigns, opting instead for pacifism and tacit support for Hitler. In the midst of all of this, Trotsky was murdered by the Stalinist agent Ramon Mercader in Mexico City in August 1940. Despite all evidence to the contrary, Earl Browder claimed that Mercader was merely a disgruntled Trotskyist. Now, as we all know, the Hitler-Stalin pact was short-lived, and on June 22, 1941, the Nazis invaded the Soviet Union. This required yet another about-face by the Communist Party, of open support for the Allies and the enforcement of a no-strike pledge for American workers they represented, all in the name of defending the socialist fatherland. Scandalously, they supported the use of the infamous Smith Act by the Roosevelt government to prosecute the Socialist Workers' Party. They even opposed A. Philip Randolph's attempt to organize a march on Washington to demand equal treatment on the job for black workers. In exchange for all this, the U.S. government loosened the restrictions it had put on the CP before the war, now that it was a loyal lapdog of U.S. imperialism. And as we've seen, in 1943, the Comintern itself was dissolved. The logic that flowed from this was to formally dissolve the Communist Party in the U.S., which was replaced by the Communist Political Association. As thanks for his services, Browder found himself out of a job and William Z. Foster took the top position in the refounded party. He held that job until 1958, by which time party membership had dwindled to fewer than 10,000, and by some estimates, as many as 1,500 of those were FBI informants. This long, sad story was all a function of the nationalist degeneration of the USSR and the Comintern, and needless to say, all this upheaval wreaked havoc on the ranks of the Communist Party. And so it was, all around the world. In Italy in 1924, Antonio Gramsci was imposed as the party's leader over the ultra-left Bordiga, although Bordiga was the natural leader and had majority support. Although Gramsci is very popular these days in academic circles, it's worth remembering that he too was an energetic supporter of so-called Bolshevization. In Hungary and Finland, Zinoviev leaned on abject failures like Bela Kuhn and Otto Kusinin, people eager to do anything to keep their positions and cover up their disastrous pasts. You can learn more about Kusinin's role in the Finnish Revolution in our podcast series on that topic. In China, the executive committee of the Communist International and Zinoviev had total control over Chen Dushu and the first cadre of the Chinese Communist Party, via control over their salaries and finances, which dampened their ability to raise honest criticisms and disagreements. Incredibly, the bourgeois nationalist Kuomintang was admitted to the Comintern as an associate party, and in 1926, Chiang Kai-shek himself was made an honorary member of the Executive Committee of the Communist International. This is the same Chiang Kai-shek who massacred the revolutionary Shanghai proletariat just a few months later in April 1927. In Japan, two opposing factions were bureaucratically smushed together from above by Bukharin in 1927. The ultra-left majority leadership under Kazuo Fukumoto was unceremoniously removed with no discussion in the ranks of the party. Naturally, Fukumoto was accused of Trotskyism, though he never supported Trotsky. 
In his work, The Third International After Lenin, written in 1928, Trotsky chastised the Stalinist leadership of the Comintern and explained, The weaknesses of the Communist parties and of their leadership did not fall from the sky. The Communist parties could develop at a swift pace in the present existing maturity of the objectively revolutionary contradictions, provided, of course, there was a correct leadership on part of the Comintern speeding up this process of development instead of retarding it. But there wasn't a correct leadership, and the process was not only retarded, but entirely derailed. By the time of the 7th Congress, held in 1935 with representatives of 65 Communist parties, things were well beyond repair. The leadership of every national section was unrecognizable, having been renewed several times over. Hitler had been allowed to come to power in 1933 without a fight, and the Menshevik-Stalinist policy of the Popular Front was about to become official Comintern policy. This blatant class collaboration ordered all communist parties to form these popular fronts with any and all parties that opposed fascism, including, and in particular, bourgeois parties. This led to absolute disaster in the rise of Franco in Spain, and yet another tragically lost revolutionary opportunity in the all-important country of France. Now firmly in the saddle, the bureaucracy's one-sided civil war against the old Bolsheviks intensified. The Stalinist purge trials were about to begin, and the mood of paranoia and ruthless settling of scores spread throughout the international. The Comintern was infested with Stalinist spies, secret police, and informers whose aim was to root out all opposition to Stalin. During Stalin's short-lived romance with Hitler, hundreds of German communists and anti-fascists who had fled from Germany to the Soviet Union were liquidated, and more than a thousand were sent back to Germany to meet their fate. 133 out of 492 Comintern staff members became victims of Stalin's Great Purge. In fact, more communists were outed, had their lives ruined, or were executed by Stalin than by any bourgeois government. The irony is that many of those who eventually went over to Trotsky to oppose Stalin, like Zinoviev himself, had been at the forefront of the anti-Trotskyist Bolshevization campaigns. This clearly wasn't the best human material with which to build a principled opposition and eventually a new international, but Trotsky did his best to work with what he had. Naturally, many in the left opposition's ranks were suspicious of these people, given their past role. Nonetheless, it's worth noting that when Zinoviev was tried and executed in 1936, strikes were organized by Trotskyist prisoners being held in the Stalinist concentration camps. These genuine Bolsheviks recognized that despite everything, Zinoviev had played a certain role in the past. Now, as we've explained, the Hitler-Stalin pact had totally disoriented and demoralized countless rank-and-file communists around the world. After finally realizing the existential threat posed by Nazi Germany, and with Stalin's internal enemies largely neutralized, the ultra-left madness of the so-called Third Period was discarded in favor of the Popular Front. The logical conclusion of this class collaboration was to dissolve the Comintern altogether. As we saw in episode 1, on May 15, 1943, as a gesture to the British and above all the American imperialists, the executive committee of the Comintern issued a declaration calling on the national sections to, quote, dissolve the Communist International as a guiding center of the international labor movement, releasing sections of the Communist International from the obligations ensuing from the Constitution and decisions of the Congresses of the Communist International. Scandalously, it declared, 
Long before the war, it became increasingly clear that to the extent that the internal as well as the international situation of individual countries became more complicated, the solution of the problems of the labor movement in each individual country through the medium of some international center would meet with insuperable obstacles. In other words, instead of embracing the complexity of the world situation and capitalism's deep crisis to build an international revolutionary force far greater than the sum of its individual component parts, they argued that this was simply too hard to do. Never mind that Marx and Engels never let a lack of resources stop them from trying to build a communist international, even at a much earlier stage of development of the world working class. The difference, of course, is that they were driven by ideas, by internationalism and class independence. The Stalinists, on the other hand, had no revolutionary ideas, no confidence in the working class, and not an iota of Marxist theory, despite the vast resources of the Soviet Union. Without consultation with most of the member parties, let alone any democratic discussion with the rank and file, the nationally degenerated communist parties rubber-stamped the declaration and the Third International was dissolved. As Ted Grant answered at the time, The Third International has been officially buried. In the most undignified and contemptible fashion it would be possible to conceive, it has passed off the stage of history. Thus, the theory of socialism in one country has had its final and logical culmination. Ted answered the pathetic excuses of the Stalinists when it came to the differences in the rhythm of the class struggle in various countries. He said, Precisely because of the differences, the revolution will not begin in all countries simultaneously. But that does not at all mean that a world party of the working class is not needed. On the contrary, it is the interdependence of the world economy, which is expressed in differences and in the law of uneven development, which makes the workers of all lands dependent on one another. The interests of the Russian, German, British, French, and other workers are not separate because of the different problems with which, quote, their nations are faced, but on the contrary, are thereby bound even more indissolubly together. That does not mean to say, as Trotsky remarked of the Comintern, that simultaneously throughout the world the national parties must march forward with the left foot. Different policies will be operated in different countries, if the conditions are different at certain periods, as it was with the Comintern in its best days under Lenin. But the basic principles which unite them into one international still remains. The decay and disintegration of capitalism, which now assumes monstrous forms, threatens all human culture with destruction. Far from being outmoded, the tasks for which it was called into being to solve have reached a new intensity. Thus, on the eve of one of the greatest revolutionary waves in world history, that which followed the end of World War II, Stalin dissolved the tool that was supposed to guide that process to victory for the world proletariat. Of course, as we've seen, that was precisely why he dissolved it, to prove to the Allied imperialists that he had no intention of ending capitalism where it already existed. Really speaking, the Comintern had died long before. In 1936, seven years before its official dissolution, in an infamous interview with the American journalist Roy Howard, Stalin had made it clear that the Comintern was dead and buried. Howard asked Stalin, Does this mean that the Soviet Union has to any degree abandoned its plans and intentions for bringing about world revolution? Stalin's reply, We never had such plans and intentions. Howard presses him further, you appreciate no doubt, Mr. Stalin, that much of the world has long entertained a different impression. Stalin, this is the product of a misunderstanding. Howard, a tragic misunderstanding? Stalin, no, a comical one, or perhaps tragicomic. 
You see, we Marxists believe that a revolution will also take place in other countries, but it will take place only when the revolutionaries in those countries think it possible or necessary. The export of revolution is nonsense. Every country will make its own revolution if it wants to, and if it does not want to, there will be no revolution. For example, our country wanted to make a revolution and made it, and now we are building a new classless society. But to assert that we want to make a revolution in other countries, to interfere in their lives, means saying what is untrue and what we have never advocated. This is really incredible stuff straight from the horse's mouth. It truly blows my mind that the assorted neo-Stalinists and tankies revere this guy, the gravedigger of the Russian Revolution and the Comintern. In 1944, the Stalinists even scrapped the Internationale as the national anthem of the Soviet Union. Instead of that resounding tribute to the Paris Commune, they replaced it with the vile nationalist state anthem of the Soviet Union. A revolutionary international is above all its program, method, banner, and traditions. Up until 1933, Trotsky and the international left opposition had considered themselves an expelled faction of the Comintern, fighting to reform it politically in order to return it to genuine Leninism. But by 1933, with the rise of Hitler, things had been corrupted beyond repair. Hence, Trotsky's declaration of the need for a fourth international and its formal founding in 1938. Trotsky spent the rest of his life defending the genuine ideas and methods of Bolshevism, a struggle he waged to the death. He understood that until capitalism is dead and buried on a world scale, we will continue to need an international. As Ted Grant put it, The creation of the international was not a question of sentiment or convenience, but arose directly from the objective tasks posed in front of the international working class. More than 90 years ago, Marx and Engels indicated that the movement of the working class for liberation cannot remain within the confines of a national shell, but must be international in character because of the international nature of world economy. The historic mission of capitalism, which created the nation-state in its progressive phase as against feudal particularism, consisted precisely in developing the productive forces to the limit of which the national state and private ownership of the means of production would allow. It was capitalism's great progressive task to create the world market, but in doing so, the means of production were developed to a point where the national state and private ownership of the means of production have become a hindrance to the further development of society. That is the cause of the impasse in which capitalist society finds itself today and which is expressed by the rise of fascism and of imperialist wars. So although capitalism succeeded in stabilizing itself after World War II and gained a new lease on life after the fall of the Soviet Union, things have come full circle on an even higher level. Those of us fighting for a better world today must redouble our efforts to build a genuine revolutionary international. The work the IMT is doing today represents the embryo of a future mass proletarian international committed to the overthrow of capitalism. But if we are to succeed, we must carefully study and learn the lessons of the past. There is very little margin for error, and we won't have too many opportunities to get it right. I think the first thing we need to draw from all of this is that political questions and organizational questions are intimately connected. The basic methods of Zinoviev and Stalin are very common in bourgeois politics. There may not be mass purges and executions, at least not today, but lies, dishonesty, and maneuvers are the daily bread of a parasitic minority desperately seeking to maintain control over the majority. Ours is a higher cause, and it is incompatible with deceit and perfidy. We are building a different kind of organization, on an entirely different class and moral basis. 
Our task is not to manage the crisis of capitalism while stuffing our pockets with power and privileges, but to bring an end to class society, exploitation, and oppression once and for all. Unfortunately, some in our movement have succumbed to the pressure of great events and have resorted to these methods to cover their own shortcomings and inadequacies. Their actions poison several generations of would-be revolutionaries. These alien methods are rampant on the left today and cannot be tolerated at any level of a healthy revolutionary organization. Informal, small-circle politics is an all-but-inevitable stage in an organization's infancy. But if it does not move beyond this stage, if it devolves into prestige politics and cliqueism, it will never be up to the task of galvanizing the working masses to overthrow capitalism. Fortunately, comrades like Trotsky and Ted Grant preserved the genuine methods of Marxism for future generations. And by analyzing these experiences dialectically, we can draw positive conclusions from the negative methods used by others. In the final analysis, political differences reflect the questions and doubts of different layers of the working class and are often an expression of the pressures of alien class ideas in the workers' movement. Such questions can only be clarified politically. The inevitable result of trying to resolve political problems by resorting to organizational measures is cynicism and demoralization, decline, and death as a revolutionary organization. Program, perspectives, theory, and in particular dialectics are not mere adornments but are indispensable to our work. In place of impatience and adventurism, revolutionary Marxists must patiently explain, not only to the broader working class, but within our own ranks. This is true at all times in the development of the organization, whether it's during periods of advance of the class struggle or periods of ebb. Needless to say, there is no room for ego or informal, undemocratic cliques. Nor is there a one-size-fits-all slogan, decree, or organizational form that can be imposed from above to magically solve all our problems in every country at any given time. If that were the case, overthrowing capitalism could have been achieved decades ago. As Trotsky explained, Bolshevism was always strong because of its historical concreteness in elaborating organizational forms. No arid schemes. The Bolsheviks changed their organizational structure radically at every transition from one stage to the next. Yet, in Stalin's common turn, one and the same principle of revolutionary order is applied to the powerful party of the proletarian dictatorship in Russia, as well as to the German Communist Party, which represents a serious political force, to the young Chinese Party, which was immediately drawn into the vortex of revolutionary struggles, and to the party of the USA, which is only a small propaganda society. A revolutionary organization must build leadership teams at all levels, balancing people's political and organizational strengths and weaknesses. In so doing, we must find the right horse for the course, so to speak, because the wrong person in the wrong role can make a mess of things, even if they have other strengths. In the final analysis, there's no substitute for an alert, attentive, educated, and engaged membership combined with a responsive leadership that leads by example and earns and re-earns its authority politically over time, which includes admitting and correcting any mistakes that are made. In short, we must rise above unprincipled pettiness and throw ourselves selflessly into the cause of the World Socialist Revolution. That's precisely what Ted Grant did in the dark days of World War II when fascism ruled half of Europe. An eternal revolutionary optimist, Ted greeted the end of the Comintern with the following words, which are more relevant today than ever. The great days of the Comintern of 1927-23 will live again. 
the growth and support for the ideas of Marxism internationally, based on the traditions of Bolshevism, the rich experience of the past, and learning the lessons of defeats of the working class, can once again lead the oppressed to the overthrow of capitalism and to the World Socialist Republic. Fortunately for those of us fighting for the socialist revolution today, the tide of the class struggle is moving in our direction and the pace of history is accelerating. And while we must certainly always adapt our tactics to the concrete conditions in any given place, there's no need to reinvent the wheel. The fundamental answers to most of the questions we face today can be found in the theoretical writings and experiences of the past, both positive and negative. In fact, there's often no better way to learn than through the mistakes of others. With that in mind, How Not to Build a Healthy Revolutionary International might have been a more apt title for this podcast series. For our part, the IMT bases itself on the extraordinary promise and lessons of the early Comintern, which laid the foundations for worldwide revolutionary class struggle in the epoch of imperialism and outlined the main ideas and methods we still use today. The documents from those early congresses are priceless and full of profound insights into the Marxist method. So there are no excuses for making the same mistakes made by the communist parties of the world in the past. If we take a serious approach, we can use this wealth of material to shorten the period needed for the training and selection of cadre. The history of the Comintern shows that you can't improvise a revolutionary leadership once a revolution has started. And once the revolutionary flood tide has started to ebb, it is even harder to hold things together if you don't have a strong leadership team. For reasons we've explained extensively elsewhere, Trotsky's efforts to build a fourth international never took off. But the IMT has taken up Trotsky's banner, just as Trotsky took up Lenin's, and Lenin took up the banner of Marx and Engels. That's the unbroken thread we're all a part of. In one country after another, we will be tested in revolutionary struggle sooner than we may think. So there's no time to waste in studying and applying these lessons. That's it for this episode and for this series. Thank you so much for listening. Big thanks as always to Laura Brown, our audiovisual producer, whose hard work behind the scenes makes these episodes possible. If you liked what you heard today, please share, subscribe, and give us a five-star rating, which will help other listeners find us. Or consider making a donation to the International Marxist Tendency or subscribing to Socialist Revolution magazine. Better yet, why not join the IMT and bring these ideas to your family, friends, neighbors, and co-workers? You can learn more about the IMT and about getting involved at socialistrevolution.org. Stay healthy and safe, and keep fighting the good fight, the fight for socialism in our lifetime. Uh-huh.